Welcome to the Precast, the Presearch Community Podcast. Presearch is a decentralized, community-driven search engine project. Visit presearch.org and join the search revolution. Hello and welcome to the Precast. My name is Catherine and today I'm very stoked to be interviewing the absolutely awesome Chelsea Palmer. So hi Chelsea. I don't know if I should say good morning or good night because it's very late for you around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, almost 3 a.m. but uh, I guess uh, good morning would fit <laughs> and good morning to you. Wow, okay, thank you. <laughs> um, so yeah, Chelsea, um, much fun, such pleasure. Uh, <laughs> thank you to you and your sore throat, mind you, um, for joining me today. Um, that, that's true dedication. I appreciate it. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. And um, I thought that for, for everyone who doesn't know you, um, I would like to uh, introduce you a little bit. But um, I, I think you've done such a great job describing yourself um, that I, I couldn't top that. So I'm, I'm just going to quote you about you. <laughs> um, so you say that, and I quote, you're a decentralist activist, a meme scholar, a pedagogical rapper, unquote. You also hashtag decentralize everything. <laughs> and, and I quote again, your passions are education, activism, and forging interdisciplinary alliances. To that, and that, that, that's, that's an awesome description if I've ever heard one, right? So. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Okay, so um, my first question will be another quote, actually, from your LinkedIn profile. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, I quote, I believe above all else that innovative design and implementation of technology can transform the world, unquote. So could you just elaborate a little bit on how exactly? Um, and also, that's, that's like the second thing. Um, I came across that term on your, I think, your website, locking the web open. Mm -hmm. So I want to know what that means to you. Okay. Well, um, as far as transformative technology and especially an eye towards innovative design in our technology, I really feel that, um, that uh, cutting edge ways of looking at solving are more complex global problems and especially problems around resource distribution. Um, in places that are right now, you know, places where they don't have uh, access to blockchain apps, etc. Um, the technology at its base level for health uh, and medical well-being. Uh, and just the idea of, I, I think a good example is there was a TED talk a while back about a group of students in India who, by approaching the problem of building an incubator for premature uh, like newborns um, in a totally different way so that you could flat ship light uh, like light materials they were able to cut down the costs to send these uh, devices to Africa to like 10% or something wild like that and we consistently see technology being used to optimize and kind of revolutionize the way we've looked at a lot of problems of uh, you know global well-being so I really do think that kind of stepping back and pulling back the aperture when we're designing new tech systems, whether they be material hardware systems or software, blockchains, stuff like that, like really kind of being MacGyver style creative or uh, following <laughs> from the, uh, the Urdu term Jugad, which means like frugal innovative hack. 
we can kind of change the game for people globally. We can jump ahead of trying to play catch up on uh, financial equity and just uh, have uh, have populations kind of leapfrog the uh, the global north uh, and the Western world. Um, and locking the web open is actually it is a term I borrowed from uh, Brewster Kale from the Internet Archive. He, uh, I believe he's the one who coined it uh, for the first decentralized web summit in 2016. Um, and it might have been Tim Berners-Lee weighing in on that or, or Vin, and or Vince Cerf. Like the first decentralized web summit was basically the, many of the creators of the original World Wide Web, the HTTP like protocol, etc., coming together with blockchain and decentralization people and saying, hey, we kind of naively assumed we wouldn't have to lock these technologies open, that they would just proceed from, you know, like the, the initial web came after the development throughout the 80s of open source software, etc., in such a way that it, it was small scale enough before it was discovered by big business that you just could assume all of your peers would behave by a set of norms you set out for sharing, for freedom, for openness. Um, and so the original Decentralized Web Summit was kind of these giants of the industry coming, coming to new projects and coming to this decentralization, what's now being called Web3 sort of thing, and saying, hey, definitely lock in the openness to these protocols, to your code itself. Make it so that it can't be compromised with the slippery slope of someone pays someone else off, etc. Like when it's no longer the founders in charge of projects, we need to make sure we've locked in those founding values. Um, and we had the, actually, Colin, the founder of Presearch, was at uh, the second decentralized web summit a few weeks ago uh, that I had the pleasure of being a part of as well. And it was great to see, it was kind of a touching base on, okay, have we been locking the web open? And there were a lot of uh, working code projects as well, whereas the first, the first session in 2016 was very much ideation. I see, I see, that's, that's awesome. And yeah, uh, Colin, Colin was there too, so um, I'm sure you had a great time there. <laughs> totally. um, I think, I mean, first of all, uh, I, I thought it's really um, fun that you were, you were um, mentioning an Urdu word because I have some friends who speak that language. And unfortunately, I, I would like to give a shout out in Urdu, but I can't really talk it. <laughs> so I, I can't speak Urdu. So yeah, I'm sorry. You pronounce it better than me. Too, <laughs> you ahead. Yeah, actually, I, I only like, I know like, um, the words for hot and cold water that's about all i can say oh, cool. so anyway shout out to all our urdu speaking and pakistani friends out there um yeah and i uh, now now i actually get what you mean by locking the web open so thanks for explaining um i yeah i think that's a crucial idea right um and i think that's it's it's all about you know um that question keeps popping up in a in a different variety um uh, again and again in the space where people ask how decentralized are we and mm -hmm. i think that that that's along the the same line so i think that that is um that is absolutely crucial that you try to lock that openness into um the the various uh applications and programs and whatever like you said so mm -hmm. I, I definitely think that we should be working on this um yeah so so thank you excellent answers um 
My second question is, um, what gets you most excited about the work you do? And um, of course, also please tell us a little bit about all the awesome things you actually do, um, like decontrol and um, you know all that amazing um, stuff that you're working on. Awesome. Uh, yeah, it's weird because most of the things I work on, like I don't know, the first ten years of my working life, I was like blue collar service industry stuff, which is very easy to separate from your identity, your social life, and it feels to me so, like, like sometimes I I get confused about what is work because much of my time is spent in kind of community settings. Um, the hacker space that I, I help organize at uh, Decontrol here in, uh, in Vancouver, um, we, we aim to, it's, it's a physical space, uh, but we aim to have a community commons vibe on non-hierarchical and moving more and more towards autonomous uh, like organization structure. Um, and yeah, when, 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 uh, and I, I think a lot of people in the decentralized technology field, uh, I, I've certainly had people share, uh, share this sentiment with me, just that it, it, we become so obsessed with this and it's so linked to our ethics, our philosophy, our personal beliefs, etc. that it is kind of like, well, what of what I do is work and what is my, my personal life? Uh, but I would say uh, decontrol is really, decontrol got me into this field and got me into the work I'm doing. Um, and I am proud to, I'm proud to say it's still around kicking exactly the same as it's been for four years. I mean, it, it changes, but it has not become commercialized in any way. I like to believe that because it's a weird little basement uh, with glowing lights in the sidewalk above, uh, it's a bit messy and a bit wild. Uh, it's, it's maintained its edge. And Vancouver as a city in general has really avoided a lot of the commercialization of blockchain that we see in you know cities like Silicon Valley where all of the infrastructure was there for that anyways. It's okay, cool let's put a blockchain on our app so that we can raise more money, et cetera. That's not always the case, but I, I know a lot of friends who are in major cities who are kind of struggling against that, against like getting, getting through to uh, investors, et cetera, that no, we've got an actual idea to solve a problem. We're not just trying to make a quick buck in the rush of all of the, you know, the gold rush of crypto. Um, but uh, decontrol is uh the root of my curriculum development, event design, etc. And that's what most things I occupy my time with uh, revolve around. I think it's very important. It's, it's, it's crucial in, in my worldview that people's first experiences with cryptocurrency and with decentralized protocols should be as, as fun as I was lucky to have a couple of years back. Uh, with the entry, both with Decontrol and the Decentralized Dance Party, which really makes this just like the most super fun ever. The best way to get people to understand decentralization is to have like a happening, magical party just arrive into their lives as they're walking down the street. Um, so I think a lot of I think a lot of what we do in the like you know in the free commons education space for decentralization is honestly like guerrilla PR and guerrilla marketing for the future of technology to get people excited about um, how much uh, this, this 
budding field is focused on their rights as users, that this is taking back power from the, you know, the exact things that uh, were commented on in the original decentralized web summit, as I mentioned, you know, like the, the walling off of gardens of data and information and access by major corporations or corporations rather the re-centralizing of everything. So as an educator and event designer, I try to make the sometimes really, you know, crypto economics is quite a complex meeting of many disciplines and fields uh, about how humans behave, uh, about how markets behave, about how we could design for better structural societies. Um, and so making that all feel approachable and fun to newcomers from every background. And hopefully, I mean, long-term for me, the main goal is uh, crypto economics and game theory can be explained to someone of any age. And if you can't explain your concept, if you can't do a TLDR or explain like I'm five on your concept, then your concept isn't polished enough yet. Like if you're working on a project or something and you can't make a summary of it that's understandable to everyone, then you need to kind of go back to work on, well, what problem am I solving? Because really, I think all of this can be translated into the human side. Um, so basically, yeah, I do a lot of different education stuff. Um, most recently, uh, we did, I think the biggest thing I've ever done in my life was uh, Dogecon Vancouver uh, a few months ago. And we did that with a t core team of four. We did a four-day event, about 200 people. Um, and I was, I, to me, the most rewarding outcome from that was people coming up and saying that this was the best time they had had in a long time, that it made them believe in decentralization again. And it made them believe that this field isn't just about grabbing a quick buck. So I'd say to me, the, at the end of the day, most of the work I do, like the passion that draws me is making, making new converts who will then, you know, carry carry the torch forward um and mainly it's not it's less even a linear progression of innovation as training up a big group of allies where we can all kind of pass the torch to each other when we get burned out or tired because the the business exploitative side of it wall street coming into blockchain and wanting to disintermediate our disintermediation is never going away and it's really emotionally exhausting so feel like training up people from all sorts of backgrounds to get in here and fight for a more equal future with us. Like that's what most of my weird diffuse and often short term or pop up activities all center around. <laughs> that's, that's great. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely um, agree with, with everything you said. Right. Um, and I think, um, as you've mentioned, it's so important to not forget about the, the human factor in, in all of this, right? Because you can have the best tech ever, you know, um, totally bulletproof technology, but still, if you're having issues with governance, issues with people just being greedy, um, you know, you're, you're not going to get anywhere, right? Because mm -hmm. um, we're, we're not completely ruled by AI, right? Tech alone doesn't is, is not enough. We need to educate people. We need to have, um, I think, a common vision of how to, I mean, I know that sounds cheesy, but how to make the world a better place, basically. So I think you're doing a great job at this. So um, kudos to you. <laughs> okay, um, my next question is about your master thesis. Um, what can you tell us about power in the information age? 
I love that title. Ah, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I am a critical theory nerd, so I, I rooted my uh, master's thesis, which is on my website, uh, stuckincyber.space, um, which is the the first portion of the thesis title as well. Um, it's uh, I, I rooted it in the work of uh, Michel Foucault, who was a historian and philosopher who believed in the 70s in France, uh, long before it was cool to believe this, uh, that power is not just a top-down structure that acts from the one to the many, that even throughout the history of like feudalism and stuff like that, the very seemingly very simplistic power structures actually involve complex flows of power through our daily actions, through tiny choices we all make. It's not to delegitimize, you know, calling out and speaking truth to power as a concept and the idea that, yeah, there are just some blatant and clear, um, you know, forms of dominance in, in political power. But Michel Foucault was much more interested in the subtleties of our day-to-day -day engagement with power structures. So, I think he would have just loved the internet. <laughs> so I, as kind of a pre-existing Foucauldian nerd, when I was moving in the direction of studying and commenting upon the history of the development of computers and the internet, I was like, this, this very much, the, the internet is kind of an enactment of, uh, of this idea of, uh, of biopower and flows and just, complexity and we kind of it's it's interesting on a meta level because machine learning and stuff like that allows us, like the tools we've developed with technology allow us to do more complex and granular analytics of pretty much all data than we ever could before so it kind of helps us enrich uh, this idea but essentially i believe there are i believe he, he foucault is best known for his concept of the panopticon which was basically like a structure which allowed the guards to give everyone in a prison the impression they could be being watched at any time. And you never know when the guards are actually watching you from this dark central tower and you've got one side of your prison cell is completely open to them. So you start to police yourself as though you're always being watched. Um, and we've seen this happen through technology, but then there's... Uh, uh, there's another concept. Um, ah, I forget the the opposite. There's there's been an, an opposite concept to panopticism, the f policing ourselves as if we're always being watched. Um, oh no, it's the the parallel to surveillance is uh, surveillance. The idea that we're always projecting ourselves and wanting to be seen and that we're putting ourselves before the commons. And so concepts like this, like the various complexities of these overlapping structures, the desire for some sort of abstract privacy, but simultaneously the desire to be seen and known uh, and recognized in the annals of history as quickly as they pass now with the internet and social media. These are all, uh, I, I feel like this is, I, I think things just get more and more complex. The more records we produce, the more data we shed in the world, and the more complex and multi-varied interactions we have with one another. So essentially, I, I feel like there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of room for liberation in there. And the essays that I wrote for my thesis, like I commented on, it was 2015, so it wasn't that far after uh, the Arab Spring Revolution and stuff like that. Um, and so I was really thinking about 
places for potential resistance, but also looking at how there's resistance going on all the time that we're not necessarily recognizing as such. Uh, So we have a lot more power than we think we do on some playing fields. Yeah, I I totally agree. We do. We just need to uh, to realize that. So, um, excellent comment, Chelsea. Um, yeah, shout out to Foucault. I mean, seriously, if you're interested in this, I mean, check out his book Discipline and Punish. It's it's amazing. I mean, it's a it's a tough read, I guess, if you're not used to it, but it's really worth it. And it's so amazing that, like you said, I mean, it was written in like the '70s or something. But um, like w- when you when you talk about you know this self surveillance, basically. Um, like first thing that comes to my mind is like Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, right? Like we're, mm-hmm. we're exposing ourselves and we do it, you know, um, w- without being, uh, you know, forced to do that. And I think that's, that's even sometimes more, more dangerous in this, in this kind of, um, pseudo freedom that we live in, in a way, you know, um, I mean, because it's, we're not completely free. We do have pressure from society and from, you know, what, what you're supposed to look like, what your life is supposed to be like and, and, um, to show that off, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, I, I think that you have a, a really good point there. So, uh, yeah, everybody go, go read up on some Foucault. <laughs> um, yeah, so that that's definitely a, a very very interesting topic, and I think we could go on um, about this for like an, another hour. But uh, <laughs> unfortunately, we don't have the time to do that. Um, so yeah, um, let's maybe move on to the next question, sure. um, which is uh, totally different, but I think very important topic as well. And it's, um, can you tell us have you ever had any gender related issues in in this? you know, after all, pretty male-dominated space, uh, so crypto encoding space. Um, mm-hmm. And if so, what advice could you give us on how to maybe change that or address mm-hmm. that? Um, and maybe also a little, about, a little bit about um, how you, like, first got into uh, this, this space in the first place. Like, was that something that has always interested you, I mean, technology, or was that, like, more, like a more recent development? Yeah, I, um, I'm actually, technology is a more recent uh, direction for me to have gone in. I mean, like past six, seven years or so, but uh, basically I got, I was passionate about education, freedom of information and stuff like that. That led me to really, I got radicalized into focusing in the tech industry uh, when Aaron Swartz died um, and just everything he stood for. I was like, okay. I'm realizing that I can have the most impact outside of the university and within the tech field and within instigating, hopefully, open access to education and information. Um, uh, And then I found my little tribe wandering into D-Control, actually, for a friend, uh, my friend Blank Banshee was playing a DJ set there back in 2015. The first time I found that space and was finishing that master's uh, degree, I was just like, whoa, if I... Hang, if I start hanging out here, I will never finish this this thesis. So I kind of bookmarked it, the whole blockchain thing, took a bunch of notes and came back six months later. But um, I have found I've been lucky to have that community. Um, and I have also found just I, 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 a somewhat culturally aberrant uh, example 
because I grew up right outside of New York City and I am in Western Canada. So I am usually though I have to police myself to not be dominant and uh, loud and pushy in <laughs> our hacker space. Like I tend to be, I kind of have had to fill the role of kind of the enforcer, the bouncer, etc. Because where I come from, it's very natural to be direct and loud and in your face, like, you know, <laughs> out in the open and then we all deal with it and it's great. And the Western Canada is, is as polite as it is, uh, you know, presumed to be. So it's actually, I'm usually uh, kind of the, uh, I've always got to check myself and be like, wait, wait, wait. Like I've noticed before, like I'll be arguing with a stranger in the hacker space and I'll get passionate about the topic at hand and I see their face and I'm like, oh, I'm just passionate about this. I don't mean to present it as though I'm like a mad or something. So it is very cultural, diff culturally different. Thing. So I guess if I if I were to be uh, if I were to be kind of cute cutesy about the whole thing, I'd say uh, uh, like female identified people who who have encountered uh, discouragement at you know entering the tech field should come to Vancouver and Western Canada and probably Canada in general from what I've seen. Like there seems to just be <laughs> so much more of a cultural norm of communication that is more in line with uh, female socialization of like give other people their turn, etc. Because my understanding from a lot of female identified friends who have encouraged or have experienced rather discouragement in tech it's because they can't deal with like the norms of a lot of the time in coding especially it's like everyone the you know like everyone argues in the loudest voice uh you know seals the envelope or something like that so there is a bit of i tend to be more comfortable in uh male socialized environments um i actually you know like i I'm genderqueer and I kind of they just have always been more masculine in, in my approach to things um, and I'm always since I've been in crypto for a couple of years it kills me like I I'm always getting approached with women in blockchain stuff and I'm like I will happily pass this on to someone who who like really feels female but that's actually not I wear a dress so I totally get it and I don't make much of a thing of it but I don't identify as female personally so it's just a thing where I do see with a bunch of women in blockchain focused activity like I do think people are fomenting to make a change in that and to yet again just like with locking the web open to not replicate the silicon valley mistakes of like creating a bro culture etc and uh, I do know quite a lot of uh, female identified people in various crucial roles in like the decentralized technology space, not as many in trading and stuff like that. And that's one thing where I think the big news cycle in 2017 around like, where are women in blockchain? Like a lot of that had to do, I think, with sort of the finance risk markets, wagering stuff that was going on up through the bubble in December of just like you you know like whether it's socialization or biology whatever angle you want to pursue there I think it's socialization because I'm kind of queer and I still got socialized as a woman so I really see this thing of like women are socialized to be risk averse and more you know make more sensible choices financially so it's like you had to really get the tech and be like one of a handful of like you know, like a couple hundred people early on with Bitcoin or be like, you know what? 
this is, I don't quite get it, but the margins are insane on this and I'll throw some money into it. Um, now that we're getting to a place where crypto is normalized, I am hoping we're going to have a wave of just people from all backgrounds. And this is why we're really pushing for diversity of every stripe is like if people from one or just a couple of demographics design tech and tools, they're going to fall flat in the real world. They're not going to serve the needs of the many. And like literally it's just even from a libertarian perspective, you're going to get poor product development because you're not going to foresee the actual needs of widespread, you know, masses of users. If it's just a bunch of, you know, really singularly minded nerds who are all speaking each other's language. So again, it, it comes back to the accessibility piece. I'm just hoping making things accessible and fun will just onboard a bunch of new types of people to crypto. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Thank you for your views on this. I mean, um, I, I'm kind of like you, I guess, because I'm naturally like very direct and very loud. So <laughs> I also don't have like, yeah, so maybe maybe it's different um, for us. And I've, I've also had mixed experiences. Like I, I've had really awesome experiences with um, male identifying people in the space and also really nasty ones. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. And I also think that uh, we need more women in blockchain. I mean, not, not necessarily. Like I could give you, I mean, my brain is not working properly because I've only had two cups of coffee, but I could give mm -hmm. you like a, a huge list of, of women in, in tech who are actually programming stuff, coding yeah. stuff, who are um, speakers and um, driving this tech. But mm -hmm. um, what I think we, what we need more of is actually just female users, you know, and, mm -hmm. and traders, of course, as well. Um, but also fe just female users, just, um, just, you know, your regular girlfriends um, sitting together and, uh, I don't know, drinking vodka martinis and discussing blockchain and uh, discussing trading and, um, you know, and talking about what kinds of wallets they use. Um, that's yeah. what I'm missing personally. Yeah. I mean, that from, from my personal experience. And um, so I'm thinking about ways, um, to improve this but yeah that's also mm. <laughs> another discussion <laughs> but yeah I, I definitely want to talk more about this in the future so uh yeah but um i'm, I'm happy that uh, it seems like you you've uh, made positive experiences for the most part mm -hmm. that's great that's great yeah um okay so my next question is um about decentralization so mm. um people very often talk about it um but you know, we haven't heard too many people talk about what the world will actually look like if we become decentralized. So how will we benefit from this? Um, how will things change? Um, but also, what do you see as the biggest threats to the success of this movement? Okay, yeah. Um, so I see, a, I see an ideal future under decentralization as involving a huge amount of choice in our daily lives, not every day, <laughs> something we, we cho choice around how our daily lives shape, shape up. Now, one thing like I, I've seen personally is having too much choice moment to moment is actually paralyzing. But what I'm more talking about is affiliations and um, opt-in opt-in nodes of networks, uh, what we already, what our communities already shape up to be organically, and we see this most, most fluidly in social groups. We just 
uh, we we lock into our groups. We we join new groups based on you know oh I started attending a meetup or I started this new hobby now I've got this new set of friends now what if we could have other elements of our lives like education and uh, getting startups off the ground and things like that what if we could opt in to different settings different agreements and different sets of resources for our various needs across many parts of our lives and I mean like healthcare things like that we have the beginnings of some models for this, but I think when we really get to a place where we have infrastructure in place so that we can easily enter and exit agreements, I think that's where like the, the ideal of like programmable smart contracts and stuff like that, hopefully ones that have accompanying human readable language and are really like, because otherwise if we just make really complex technology, that we can't verify as end users is actually doing what it says it's doing, then we're just creating kind of like a tyrant king class of the programmers. Um, but what I mainly see is the idea of the modular opt-in groups. Um, I, I don't see ICOs the way they're happening right now as uh, having changed much for financial equity, but the idea that we can have community incubators, uh, whether they be geographically bound or bound to certain industries, where someone with a really great idea can come and find peers and crowdfund uh, through tokenization or otherwise, uh, can crowdfund and then dissolve the unnecessary parts of infrastructure. I think that's a key piece that's that's missing in our current model and in our transition with technology is the idea that an and event management actually has this down pretty well. Like you're going to create a bunch of infrastructure for your event and then most of it is not going to be needed ever again. Um, the, you know, so there's, some of it's not going to be needed ever again. Most of it's not going to be needed till the next instantiation, etc. So we basically need a way to create flexible, uh, kind of living living alliances where we can uh, then put things uh, into hibernation and we can stop devoting our time and resources to um, to them when they're unnecessary. So basically, and in the ideal long term, I don't have much faith in uh, the nation state governments or whatever, but the ideal long term would be to have decentralization affect the way we advocate for ourselves as citizens. And for us to have many more options to opt in or out through, uh, through voting on issues, not voting for representatives, etc. Now, in all this, what I do think is the biggest threat, and it's the biggest current threat to this rising revolution and the biggest long-term threat to its sustainability, is just um, purists to decentralization decentralists, if you will, um, tend to be suspicious of organization, thinking it to be centralization. Like there's too much <laughs> conflating, yeah, conflating decentralization with disorganization. And I yeah. think this is where we kind of fall to the problem we've always had with anarchic methods of reaching consensus is you're never going to reach perfect, perfect consensus in a group of more than one person. Yes. Um, Sometimes not even that. Yeah, exactly. And so, some, so it's really easy to get bogged down and to not 
uh, set priorities about, okay, well, what level of consensus do each of these matters need, etc. And then on the other side, there's people who are just seeing crypto as a gold rush and are not, and a lot of people are getting educated by people who already have a half tenuous grasp on what decentralization is, on how blockchain works and why it's unique. And so they're only getting a half education and missing the decentralization piece entirely and just seeing the tokenization crypto get rich quick. So we've got people who are too much sticklers, who are all infighting and unable to make even a single step often without forking into a million different groups. And then we've got people who are like, what are all these people yelling about? There's money to be made. <laughs> so I worry that, you know, like we need to, uh, the, 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 former group, the Decentralists, uh, need to get our act together and uh, collaborate to make sure that we at least transmit the importance of not replicating the same old bureaucratic centralized power structures to these huge floods of newcomers that come into the space. And they are eager and they have energy and we shouldn't denigrate that. We should welcome them to help. We should get them as excited as we are and have more hands on deck. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, then uh, thank you very much. Excellent answer, sure. really. Um, I just uh, I need to um, wrap this up now, I think. But yeah. um, very quick last question. Are you already using pre-search? <laughs> I have dabbled on pre-search, indeed. Um, I, am, I, often, I am roped into a, a, an Android hellhole for my life. So <laughs> I, I, I was most interested in the challenge to Google initially when I first heard about pre-search because I'm like, I hate, I wrote an entire rap song about my ethical conflicts with Google and how much it owns my life. <laughs> and I love the user first uh, perspective that has driven pre-search from the beginning. So I have dabbled, but I have not integrated deeply enough into my life. Uh, and I want to keep learning, honestly. Um, I like that uh, y'all are moving ahead with, uh, you know, sort of, the usability and I'm hoping like mainly I do all my searching from mobile. So I just need to bookmark, I think. Um, but I, I honestly think this is one of the projects that is actually challenging like an area where this is what most people use the internet for daily. And this is an area of internet use that is not, you know, unlike YouTube streaming or something like that. It's something that like, like, you don't even need a smartphone to be searching just for answers to your questions, et cetera. So I think this is one of the, fir the first big frontiers, and it's one that most people have been completely afraid to touch. So I, I have mad respect for, for the whole thing. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Chelsea. Yeah. Um, thank you for the mad respect. <laughs> um, such appreciate. Um, <laughs> yeah, my, my doge is really bad. Uh, uh, <laughs> so it's only like a, a second language or thir third language or whatever. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Um, I just want to say thank you so much. I really, I loved your answers. They're absolutely awesome. And uh, thank you so much for, for taking the time and talking to us today. And also, um, all of the links to your website and your 
projects and all of that will of course be in the description below as always and I highly recommend you you check that stuff out because it's absolutely awesome and fun to watch and I, I would have loved to ask you uh, to rap for us but I don't want to put too much strain on your yeah. already sore throat so yeah, thank um, you. and I'm not gonna rap either I'm gonna spare <laughs> you so um yeah thank you so much it was really great talking to you um, yeah, thank you for having me on. And I have been thinking on the pre-search rap because I realized, like, I did write a, a thesis essay on being conflicted by Google and then a corresponding music video and song. So why not three years later? Why not? Here's the answer to Google. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be working on that. <laughs> okay. I'll be looking forward to this. <laughs> okay. So maybe you'll he hear the, the pre-search rap by Chelsea Palmer. Um, <laughs> very soon on the airwaves um let, let's let's hope so i would really love that um so again thank you um thanks everyone for listening and um i'll see you next time bye guys if you like this episode then please subscribe and if you want to stay updated on everything research be sure to follow our social media channels the links are in the description